Thank you, Mackenzie, for that reading. That is exactly what that text should do to us, is move us um, in that way. So I appreciate your being present to that text, Mackenzie. We've gotten some questions about masks. Now, in keeping with the guidelines that we've continued to follow, we've moved into a recommended, not required time of mass. So uh, just wanted to be clear about that. I'd also like to pray uh, on behalf of what's going on in the world. Um, and, and I appreciated Beth's comments about our needing, our attention needing to be drawn to the one who's on the throne, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, not these people who would like to be King of Kings or Lord of Lords. And I was reading uh, from some different voices, Ukrainian voices, pastors, of really how to pray. How do, you, how do we pray about this? And I came across one pastor who was, was really encouraging our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine uh, to be praying along the lines of Psalm, of Psalm 31. So I'm going to read that and then pray in light of that. We're also going to have a time toward the end of the service where we're going to be interceding on behalf of a few things, one of those being uh, what's going on over there. But I'm going to read Psalm 31, and, and I want you to think about what is happening and think about these words, the words of this psalm on the lips of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the Ukraine praying this way. The words of the psalm that it should be on our lips as we pray. In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not let me ever be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. You hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will exult and rejoice in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have taken heed of my advers ad adversaries and have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye wastes away from grief, my soul and body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my misery and my bones waste away. I am the scorn of all my adversaries, a horror to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've passed out of mind like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror all around, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Do not let me be put to shame, O Lord, for I call on you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go dumbfounded, Sheol. Let the lying lips be stilled that speak insolently against the righteous with pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness that you have laid up for those who fear you and accomplished for those who take refuge in you in the sight of everyone. In the shelter of your presence, you hide them from human plots. You hold them safe under your shelter from contentious tongues. 
Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was beset as a city under siege. I had said in my alarm, I am driven far from your sight, but you heard my supplications when I cried out to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts haughtily. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. And God, King of kings and Lord of lords, we ask that this be done for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We ask that you would give them hope and courage, that you would give them strength. We ask that you would incline your ear to their cries, to our cries on their behalf. We ask that you would suppress the oppressive powers that seek control, that seek to take, that seek to kill. You are the God who wants to make things right, and so because you are that type of God, we ask that you will for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We ask that their bones will not waste away. We ask that you, God of peace, would be the one who brings peace miraculously now because you can, because you have, and because we trust that you are the God who ultimately will. But we pray that heaven would come to earth now in this moment so that all might say you are the God who saves. You are the God who has steadfast love and who is everlasting and powerful. God, make things right for our brothers and sisters who are suffering. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Speaking of prayer, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about praying. We're talking about a God who listens. We're talking about the prayers of God's people. And we wonder and we think, what is prayer? What do we do or what are we doing when we pray? What is God doing in response to our prayers? Chances are you have lots of thoughts about what prayer does or what effect it has or what it even means in the life of faith. For some, and this is probably, this, this isn't necessarily an evolution. You find yourself here, in, depending on where you might be, at least that's my experience. You think, oh, prayer is good because it's for me. It changes my heart. It makes my will and desires in line with God's will and desires. Sometimes you think, well, I pray because it makes a difference in what God's going to do. But then you think, well, if that's the case, then does that mean that God doesn't really know what he's going to do or that, that he's not... He's not so certain, and he needs our prayers in order to get him to do something. Prayer is a weird, complex, tricky thing, but it's absolutely essential to the life of faith. Now, speaking of current events, on Wednesday, I was at Rosselbach eating dinner with a friend, and I had a, my, my friend who, who's at the restaurant often, he came in, I saw him as I was going to the bathroom, he's like, did you hear the news? Putin just invaded and all of a sudden, the screens changed to the current events, and, 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 I'm eat, and I went to the restroom, I came back, and I was eating with my friend, and it was the most surreal experience. 
eating food, drinking good beverages, having good conversation, knowing what is happening. Not here, but over there, so removed from my current experience. To get even weirder, they were doing trivia, which was also bizarre. And one of the team's names from trivia was Thanks Putin. And I'm sitting there saying, this is a movie. This is a moment in a movie that we watch and think, oh, that's so ridiculous. How on the nose is that scene? Of course, they're just trying to send a message about how it's so easy to be removed from suffering that's happening all over the world. And here people are just eating and drinking and having good conversation and playing trivia while people are actually suffering. While there's, there are wars going on. And I was sitting there thinking how hopeless, not hope, hopeless, and powerless it all seemed. What do I do? And so you continue to read, or I've been continuing to read people who have been speaking from the Ukraine, in particular Christians, brothers and sisters, of what to do, and to a person they say to pray. And it's not just something we do because it's a good thing to do because we call ourselves Christians. The reason why they say to pray is because they actually believe that it makes a difference. And that it actually matters. And that it's a way that we involve ourselves with God, that God involves us in what is taking place, that things happen because of the prayers that we pray. And we're going to be looking at a text this morning where that is, in fact, the case. If you want, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. And we're going to look at this exchange, this conversation between Abraham and Yahweh, the Lord, in reference to what God is going to do or not going to do in the city of Sodom. So we see in, in the book of Genesis up to this point, and this is important, that God is wanting to involve himself in the life of Abraham, and he's wanting to get Abraham involved in the life and work of God. And what we're going to see this morning through this prayer is that the God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, the God who revealed himself to Abraham and all through the story of Scripture up to now is a God who involves and listens to us. A God who involves and listens. That is the God that we speak of when we speak of the God to whom we pray. A God who involves and listens. But there's this journey in Genesis up to this point between God and Abraham where there's this ongoing revelation of how God is revealing himself to Abraham and these exchanges that, that they have. We see it in Genesis 12 when God reveals himself to Abraham and says, Abraham, get up and go. Go out of Haran and go. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. Your descendants will be many. You will not be able to count them. God continues to speak to Abraham in Genesis 13. Again, a pronouncement of the promise. Abraham doesn't actually speak back until Genesis 15 in the context of God wanting to give him a son, and Abraham then responds with questions, with doubts. What does that say, 
about this pillar of faith that the first thing he says to God is a question or a doubt or are you sure? Or God, I'm not sure you know, but I am old. That's a pretty remarkable thing. But then it continues. God continues to reveal himself to Abraham. And then they partake in this covenant relationship, this covenant ceremony, where they become partners in a covenant relationship that will not be broken, at least by God. And then we get to Genesis 18, when God is going to go down to Sodom because he hears the cries of the wickedness come to him, and he goes to seek what is actually happening to to then decide what he's going to do. And then he says something interesting. Should I let Abraham in on it? Should I let Abraham in on what I'm about to do? Now, why do I bring up this context up to this point? Because faith, living life with God, is an ongoing journey that requires an ongoing revelation of who this God is. When we read scripture, at least for me, when we read about people like Abraham, we read about people like Paul, we read about the disciples, we think that because God interacted with them, everything they needed to know about God was immediately downloaded into their brain. And so then we kind of scoff at their uh, rebellion. Like, how, why would you do that? Of course you know. But the thing about these people who are living life with God is they are getting to know this God. I mean, Abraham's life, who knows what it was like. But then there's this God, Yahweh, who shows up and completely disrupts it. And Abraham is then tasked to learn and discover who this God is by God revealing himself to Abraham. And one of the ways that that happens primarily is through prayer. One of the ways this ongoing understanding, revelation of how God is at work with his people in the world is through this conversation. At least that's what we see in the person of Abraham. And so we see in Genesis 18, starting in verse 16, then the men set out from there and they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in in him? No, God says, for I have chosen him, that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So God's deliberating. Should I hide from Abraham? And then we almost see this conversation in the mind of God. No, I shouldn't do that because I've tasked Abraham with this purpose of learning righteousness and justice and then passing it on to his descendants. So somehow this prayer of what we're going to see is connected to this righteousness and justice of God and this righteousness and justice that Abraham is to learn and is to be schooled in. Prayer, significant to this learning. Conversation with God, absolutely central to what's happening. What we see here is God wanting to involve Abraham 
in what God is thinking about doing. Abraham becomes the central component to this work of God and what God is going to do in the city of Sodom, which is crazy to me because I don't know if you know this, but it is just so much easier to do things by yourself. When you involve other people, things get messy, things get complicated. It is way easier to sweep the outside yard without my kids <laughs> wanting to contribute helpfully. It is quicker. It is streamlined. It is efficient. And it takes about five minutes. But when we involve, when I involve these little people in this process, it is dirtier somehow. It takes about 30 minutes. I am way more frustrated. They might be crying at the end of it. <laughs> and the job still needs to get done. But the point is not to have a clean backyard. The point is that there are people who want to be involved in my life and people who I want to have involved in my life and I want to be involved in their life that it becomes about something greater than just making sure the job is done and complete. God, in theory, could do whatever he would like to do, want to do, and it would be far better, far cleaner, far easier if human beings weren't involved. But then we have to think, well, maybe the point isn't simply what God just wants to do. Maybe the point is actually the people he's created to be co-creators, to be partners in the work he wants, in the things he's up to. What we see is a God who involves Shall I hide from Abraham? No, I shouldn't, because this is, this is the type of relationship we have. I've brought him into covenant. He needs to learn my ways of righteousness and justice. How is that going to happen if I don't actually involve him, if I don't take seriously the partnership, the covenant partnership that we've made? And so God involves, and he brings Abraham in. And then all of a sudden, God has a problem because he has another partner, a covenant partner, who is interacting with God in what is about to happen. I mean, that's, think about that for a minute. God, through Jesus Christ, with the ongoing power of the Spirit, has involved you into what God is up to in the world. And me, we are involved in that. And this conversation with God be between Abraham and God is significant to that partnership. And we know how this goes, right? So if we continue to read verse 20, Then the Lord said, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. And so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. 
Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Again, Abraham's first words to God, a question. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you. I mean, this is risky speech. Far be it from you to do such a thing. To slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Not only questions, but almost letting God know who God is. Why would you do that? That's not who you are. That doesn't seem very just. I mean, this is risky speech, risky conversation. This, my friends, is prayer. And we know how this goes. And this isn't bargaining. This isn't as if, like, Abraham says, like, quid pro quo, hey, you give me this, I'll give you that. It's not what's happening. Abraham is simply, simply wanting Sodom to be spared. And he has some skin in the game because we know from a previous story that his, his sibling, not siblings, um, his family, Lot and his family, are in Sodom. So he does have some stake in the fact that Sodom be saved. And so he's interceding on his behalf. If there are 50 righteous, God says, okay, if there are 50 righteous, I won't. And then Abraham continues, 45, God says, no. And we hear this throughout, far be it from you, you wouldn't do this. 40, no. If I find 40, no. 30, no. If I find 30, I will not. 20, 10, keeps going. Every time, Abraham is, is risking this question, interceding on behalf of Sodom, and God is receiving it and responding and is agreeing to it. Like we have to entertain the possibility because this is narrative that God would spare Sodom because of Abraham's conversation. We can totally get ourselves out of this theologically. It's going to try to turn theology into a verb. I'm sure that's possible, but we're going to try to get our, we can get ourselves out of this. Well, of course, again, this is just God wanting to involve Abraham because this is for Abraham's sake. It's not really for, for, for making any sort of difference. But the way that it's told and the narrative that we have, that's putting these theological categories on the story, knowing how we would then interpret it. But the narrative as it goes, we have to entertain the possibility that God was involving Abraham in such a way that God was allowing his ultimate decision to be affected, changed, somehow taking into account what Abraham's prayers were. The text, if we read it as the text gives it to us, we have to entertain that possibility. And that's complex, and that's tricky. And what does that mean for our prayer life? It means we have to pray. Because it's complex and tricky in the way that God involves us in the life of what God is doing, in the work that God is doing, is by risky, bold, ongoing prayer. So what does this continue to show about God? This complex conversation, prayer between Abraham and God. What do we see about what God is, who God is, and what he's like. 
Well, first we know that he takes Abraham's request, his, inter- his interceding seriously. God seriously entertains the possibilities that Abraham is bringing to him. We also see that there's a common convention being completely reimagined, and here's what I mean by that. It is no secret that one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. That is the way of the day. As we think about customs in terms of how things operated, still operate, but operated for sure then, it's like this. One wicked person could defile a whole righteous community. So then what would be, what's needed to happen? You need to get rid of the one wicked person so that the righteousness of the community could be held intact so it is not defiled. That's a common convention. This prayer is reimagining that convention. Abraham says, but perhaps because of who God is, because of who God has revealed himself to be, maybe it could work another way. Is it possible that a small righteous might impact a large wicked community? Is it possible that you just need a small remnant and then a city defined by wickedness could be saved? And we see that is who God is, because if we continue the story to Jesus, we know that it only takes one. One righteous person to then affect and save a whole wicked world. But not only that, it isn't just salvific in the sense of like eternal salvation, but it's also salvific in the way we see the ministry of Jesus. This is why it makes the ministry of Jesus so significant. Again, Jesus is going against these norms where you needed the sick, you needed the defiled, you needed these people to be completely expelled from the community. You could not touch anything that was dirty, dead, or deformed because that would mean that the whole community would be at risk of being impure and unclean. And Jesus comes on the scene because this is who God is revealed in Jesus, says, no, that is not how it works. I can heal my holiness, my righteousness. It can affect the defiled and the deformed and the impure, and it can make clean. That is beautiful. So what does that mean for us and our ability to be empowered and transformed by the Spirit of God, that it matters who we are, but also matters the power that we have. And the Christian community does not need to be afraid of being contaminated. And trust me, it seems like a lot of Christians are afraid of being contaminated. Don't get close. We can't have that here because then whatever happens. That is a lack of faith in terms of who God shows himself to be. We, because of who Jesus has showed himself to be, we don't have to fear contamination. The impure has to fear becoming pure. The unclean has to fear becoming clean because of Jesus. So who did, what does this show about who God is? What does this prayer show? 
it shows that it only takes a little. It only takes a little for God to heal and to make clean and to bring holiness. This is the convention that's being reimagined in this conversation between Abraham and God. And so then what do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about Abraham? What do we learn about prayer through this conversation? Well, we see that prayer is a vocation. Prayer is central to the vocation. So again, God says this is important for Abraham to know to be brought in in order to learn the ways of righteousness and justice. So prayer becomes central to that vocation. And what does this show again about who God is? It says that God is concerned with righteousness and justice, but it is a righteousness and justice infused with mercy. And so prayer becomes part of this vocation, this vocation of partnership with God, of actually taking seriously the covenant partnership that God has involved us in. Prayer is central to that. Prayer is central to this vocation of compassion. One of the things I love about Abraham that sort of jumped out at me in a new way this time was how compassionate Abraham was on the city of Sodom. Looking upon the city that was crying out to God because of its wickedness, wants, Abraham wants this city to be saved. There is no cynicism here. There is compassion. It reminds me of Jesus looking upon Jerusalem being filled with compassion, weeping on its behalf. Jesus seeing the crowds having compassion on them. Prayer is central to this vocation of partnership, central to this vocation of compassion, central to this vocation of holiness. Again, it matters who we are, how we live, because there is some somehow, by God's means, because of Jesus and the Spirit, some salvific power through the remnant of of the holy. And so it matters how we are and how we live. So this conversation shows that prayer is central to the vocation. It also shows that prayer is rooted in trust. Prayer is rooted in trust. Again, this comes by way of this ongoing revelation between God and Abraham. Abraham is beginning to trust who this God is. That is why he can say things, this is not who you are. Far be it from you that this would be what you do. Are you not just? This doesn't seem just. See, there's this, rooted, there's this rootedness of this prayer and trust of who this God is and who God has revealed himself to be. And Abraham actually trusted that this conversation mattered, that God wasn't just pandering to Abraham. Oh, isn't this sweet? Look at him. He's just going to ask in these things. But I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do anyway. No. Abraham, in his mind, believes that this conversation will have real-world effect on the city of Sodom. Finally, prayer demands risk. Prayer demands risk. What we see here, because Abraham takes his vocation seriously, because of being rooted in trust, he is then able to risk with his prayers able to actually ask that God would spare Sodom. Just like we can take the risk of asking that God might actually bring peace to Ukraine. 
praying, risking that God might actually intercede because of our prayers of intercession. And whatever it is you need or want or desire God to do, And the reason why it's so hard to intercede and to risk is because, this is personal, I do not want to be let down. I do not want to be let down. I'm let down all the time. And so then I bring that into my relating to God. And instead of being honest with my desires, I hedge. Do you hedge? Do you hedge your bets in your prayers? I certainly do. Because the fear of actually being disappointed seems so much stronger and so much riskier that if I was to actually tell God what I wanted or what I needed, what if it doesn't happen? Or what if something different happens entirely? What if God's silent? What then? What's going to happen to my faith? What's going to happen to my my understanding of what God is like? But see, the thing is, is we all have desires. That is a way that God has built us in order that we might co-create and partner with him in the world. We are people who desire. And if our desires cannot make their way in prayer or in conversation with God, you are then not being human in your prayer. You are not letting God know who you are, and thereby you will not feel known by God. Prayer demands risk. Risk in our language, reminding God of who God is and why, in fact, God should act in these ways because of what we know to be true about God, because of his word, so that assumes we know what is true about God through his word and through experience and through the stories of people. But it also demands risk in the things that we say and we bring before God and the desires that we entrust. So as we end here, we're going to take a risk, and I'm going to ask you to take a risk and to pray with each other, people around you, and to intercede in some different ways. And this is going to be uncomfortable for some of you, which I completely understand and get. But I'm going to offer three ways that you might then, you might think about interceding, and I'm going to ask you to pick one of these ways to then intercede with others. Now, on the one hand, I'm I'm thinking about these in concentric circles. So on the close, smaller inner circle, how might you intercede for yourself and for those you cherish. So as you think about it in a smaller scale, how do you need to intercede for yourself or for those you cherish? Maybe a little wider circle. How might you intercede for Long Beach? Gun violence and violence in general is on the crazy rise in our city. As God's people, we should be interceding for that. How might you intercede for the world? Now, obviously, there are things right before us we can be interceding for. For Ukraine, for peace. For brothers and sisters who are there. 
for Christians. This one pastor, Ukrainian pastor, says, we're going to shelter the weak, we're going to serve the suffering, and we're going to mend the broken. And as we do this, we're going to offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. And we pray the church in Ukraine will faithfully trust the Lord and serve our neighbors. That's a way we can intercede for them. We can intercede for the world. Certainly, they're, like, the greatest resource we have here is one another, and there are things I don't even know I should be interceding for that you can intercede for. So we're going to take a moment. I'm actually going to give you just a space of quiet to think about one of those areas that you might then intercede for and press into. Uh, and in a moment, I'm going to ask you to maybe turn to somebody who's near you and, and intercede. And then at the end of that time, Will's going to come up and he's going to lead us in a corporate prayer of intercession on behalf of what is happening um, between Russia and Ukraine. So just take a moment, think about these questions of how you might intercede. Think about it as in terms of part of our, our vocation and how we live into what God has called us. And then I will then ask you to, to start praying in a minute.